You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. I have a million slides. I'm going to go as fast as I can. Hold on to your horses. You think I'm joking, I'm not. It's probably the most slides I've ever had. If you have any questions, please feel free to send them to me. Um, I would love to hear you. In fact, I'm going to do a couple things different today. I'm going to ask you if you know of any examples of the points that we're talking about. Um, So if you want a dialogue instead of uh, listen to me monologue, get those phones out. Uh, But that's the thing. It's going to be on the bottom of every slide. I usually try to start off with a problem, something uh, for us to uh, hear as bad news that we experience in the world so that we can hear the good news of Jesus. And I think the bad news is this, that there are Christians who are functional atheists. And what we mean by that is that there are Christians who live and move in the world as if God is not real. Though they do all the things and they profess all the things and they say all the things and they say they believe all the things, they move and act in the world as if God isn't real and God doesn't follow them past Sunday morning. And then there's a world who doesn't mind being fake religious. And these folks can overlap, uh, but those are kind of extremes that we're going to be talking about today. We have a wild story that doesn't get preached on very often, but I think uh, this is the extremes in the story that we're going to see and that we're going to be asked to avoid. We've been in the middle of a sermon series called Genesis. We're going through the first book of the Bible, that ancient part of the Bible that really tries to lay a foundation about what God is up to and who God is and how God is trying to save God's creation. And so the introduction that we've done over the last, by the way, this is week 12, is that God created everything and he created us to be co-divine ruling beings over creation to steward and care for the thing that God created. But Adam and Eve uh, violated the boundary and they ate of that fruit that uh, before their time was supposed to, and they plunged all of creation into sin and sickness and disease and death. God tried to do some multiple salvation efforts there in the first 11 chapters, but ultimately it spirals into bad. And then God chooses a new salvation plan through a very old couple in the middle of nowhere uh, named Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through your offspring... We're going to save the world. Abraham and Sarah, at 100 years old, have a son named Isaac, and he marries Rebecca, who is a boss. And they have a son's name Jacob and Esau, which we learned about last week. I don't know what happened last week, but I came so excited to share that message, and I feel like something happened to me that fell flat. And so ultimately, what you need to know is that Jacob wrestles with God and sees God's face. And then for me, the point of that whole story is the next day, his brother, who he thought was going to kill him, forgives him. And it's in that forgiveness that he says, I've seen the face of God in his brother. And he saw it the night before. Esau offers love and forgiveness. They weep there in the desert together. In both the wrestling and the forgiveness, God's face is seen. And Jacob is renamed as Israel. And he has 12 sons. And these sons become the tribes of Israel. And that's how we talk about this people called Israel. Jacob's name is changed to that, which means wrestles with God and humans and wins. And his 12 sons, essentially, I'm giving you the clip notes version, become the 12 tribes of Israel. You've heard Today's story is Genesis 34, 
It's about some people named Dinah, Shechem, Simeon, and Levi. Jacob, whose name changed to Israel, has a daughter. This is the only daughter that's mentioned. He has lots of daughters, but that's the only one that's mentioned is Dinah. They moved to a city called Shechem. Also, the priest is, I mean, the prince is named Shechem, so that's confusing because it's a city and a person. And the two of the sons who become tribes named Simeon and Levi. And this is the story of Dinah, Simeon, Levi. I have to warn you that the Bible is not, the Bible is not made for kids. It's more like Game of Thrones. And that's what today's story is. There's some hard parts to today's story. Um, and, and it's one of those stories that I'm not quite sure what the moral is. And, and I read a million scars. I even emailed some scholars and dialogued with them about it. But it's a story nonetheless that we continue to tell. And so I think we could take some things from it. But what I don't want us to take is that everything in it is something that God wants us to do. Some hard stuff right <laughs> off the bat. And poor Dinah gets zero lines in the story. But what happens to her is, is the, the thing that catapults the whole story into motion. It is ambiguous whether or not she was sexually assaulted or whether or not she consensually uh, uh, went to spend the night with the prince named Shechem in the city of Shechem. We don't know. And I think that ambiguity is there on purpose. And the scholars are bitterly divided, which is why I emailed them. I said, can you help me out? And whatever way you land on that is going to paint the way you read that story. But I think it's ambiguous on purpose because uh, life is messy. We don't know. Uh, so I'll let you decide. But I think there's some stuff going on in there. So the story begins with Dinah. And she, uh, something happens with a prince. Shechem, who is not part of Israel. You know how we preach here? Head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to feel or experience, something for us to do. Let's tell the story. Let's pull out some points and let's be on our way. It begins like this. Israel, Jacob, Israel, same guy, finally makes it back to this place called Shechem, which is in the land that God had promised them, but they haven't taken over yet. And he buys some property there. And this is the first time Israel has bought property to live on, which he's going to. He's going to live there. He pitched his tents there. Abraham bought some land, but it was to bury his beloved wife, Sarah. No one has bought land yet to live. This is a, a momentous occasion that really stirs up all kinds of stuff in Jacob as the story progresses. And they're in this city called Shechem with this prince named Shechem. And then it goes like this, Dinah, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, or Israel, went out to meet the women of that country. And when Shechem, the son of uh, the Hivite Hamor, the country's prince, saw her, he took her and he slept with her and humiliated her. He was drawn to Dinah, Jacob's daughter. He loved this young woman and he tried to win her heart. And he said to his father, get this woman to be my wife. And so essentially they show up to Israel and they say, no price is too, too big. We'll give you anything. We'll give you anything to marry your daughter, Dinah. My son Shechem's heart is set on her. The sons of Jacob came back and they were pretty upset about what happened to their daughter. I mean, their sister. Either something happened against her will or... Uh, she was a virgin, and now her bride price is not as high as it would be. That's where the ambiguity comes in. Uh, 
And so the king said, my son's heart is set on your daughter. Let him marry her, arrange marriages with us. Give us your daughters, take our daughters, live with us. The land is available to you. Settle down here and buy property into it. And then Shechem sent to Dinah's father and brothers, if you approve of me, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. Make the bride price as high as you like. I'll pay whatever you want. And Jacob's sons responded deviously. They inherited their father's characteristics. I don't know if you know, remember what Jacob means, but it means the one who grabs the heel, the one who trips people up, the trickster, the liar. And so Jacob's sons received that gift, but they're going re- to add to that something their father never would have. So they say, listen, you can marry our sister. You can, yes. But we don't let anyone marry our sister and marry into our family unless they get circumcised. Not only you, prince of Shechem, named Shechem, but every man in your city has to get circumcised. You said no price is too high. We want all the dudes in your village to cut it off. And he said, okay, let's do it. Their idea seemed like a good one to Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem. The young man didn't want to waste any time doing this because he liked Jacob's daughter so much. He was more respected than anyone, the prince was more respected than anyone else in his father's household. Hamor and his son Shechem went to their city's gate and spoke to the men of their city. Last slide of our story so far. They said, these men, Israel, Jacob, the sons, they want peace with us. Let them live in the land and travel through it. There's plenty of land for them. And we will marry their daughters. And we will give them our daughters. But the men will agree to live with us and become one people only if we circumcise every male. Just as they do. Their livestock, their property, and all their animals. Won't they be ours? Let's agree with them and let them live with us. And everyone at the city agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. So every available, able-bodied male in the city was circumcised. Here's the question. Why did the men of the city get circumcised? The men will agree to us. Their livestock and their property and their daughters and all of their animals, won't they be ours? Who cares if we just got to cut a little bit of skin off? I'm getting sweaty to thinking about it. Look how much our wealth will increase. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah, that's their religious custom. It's not ours. Who cares? Cut the skin off and our wealth will increase. Why did the men get circumcised? What does God want us to know? This says heart, but I, want it, I think it's head. What God wants us to know is that the world will play religious games for selfish gain. The world will play our religious games for selfish gain. I think that's one of the things we can take away from this story. They had no problem participating in Israel's most sacred religious identity ritual, which was circumcision. Do you have any examples of the world playing religious games for selfish gain? Go ahead and send them to me if you got them. This is, their, this is what they're hoping to gain by playing this religious game. Daughters, property, animals, livestock. It's all going to be ours. Again, this is Israel's most sacred ritual. They don't have the law. Moses hasn't come. There's no Ten Commandments. The only way that you're included in God's covenant right now is this piece of skin being missing from your body. 
And the world says, sure, we'll play your religious games. You just have to give us all your stuff. Shechemites are willing to do it for all the wrong reasons. And I think our world is the same. The person who ended their text with code, you have to, uh, will you elaborate? Because I want that one. I'm getting some coming in. You guys are doing so good. Yeah, somebody is on the same page that I'm getting ready to go to. Someone says you can't cuss. I think that's, right? It's not polite society to use foul language, especially in mixed company, though you all... I don't consider myself a judgmental person. I'm usually pretty open about what people are going on, but sometimes I'm at Walmart with my kids and I hear people say bad words and I'm ready to be on it. I'm like Captain America. I'm like, language. And they'll turn around and be like, don't ever talk to me ever again. Somebody's mentioning dress code, like uh, women can't wear pants. Is that, what, is that what you're going for? I think that's true. I think there's some ways in which like our... Uh, our re- old religious traditions have infiltrated the world. Um, somebody's got shady televangelists. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that one. <laughs> Somebody says, politicians using religion? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Christianity America in general? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I came up with was politicians. All of them. I don't care what party you're at. They all are like, yeah, totally. I, love, I love Jesus so much. <laughs> I've been to church in like, you know, forever, and I don't really practice any of the stuff that Jesus said. And, you know, but every inauguration, these are inaugurations of the last four presidents. I'm not picking on anybody. They all got pastors and priests to come pray for them. There's Franklin Graham. There's the Catholic priest. Uh, they all swear on Bibles, right? Fancy what some of them are. Lincoln Bibles. Trump had a Lincoln Bible and a family Bible. Uh, Joe Biden had a Bible that he was given to his family for the last 175 years. It's been in his family. Uh, just to keep going, there's Obama getting prayed for by Rick Warren. There's, uh, there's Bush getting prayed for by Franklin Graham. Clinton being prayed for by Billy Graham. Billy Graham prayed for all of them. <laughs> He's so many. They all got Bibles. They all got pastors. Some of them have sick pastors, six pastors praying for them. Sometimes they go to prayer services beforehand. And I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything about their own heart motivations at this point. But what I'm saying is sometimes it feels like a show to legitimize their authority. That somehow God or whatever picked that person for that time. And I'm just not sure I'm comfortable with the way the world uses this time of transition of power and brings in all of our spiritual leaders around the globe to, to uh, be a part of this. There's a way in which the world will play religious games for selfish gain. I think that is 100% true, and I think we need to be weary about it. I think we need to be uh, suspicious. It's nice when they say the words and they do the things. But as I said, I think we should be suspicious. Because 
I think, governments have never been the friend of Christ, and even the friendliest of governments often do it for their own motive and gain. Uh, They're not trying necessarily to follow Christ. They're trying to get the church to endorse their campaigns and their policies. And they would love nothing more for us to fight their battles among us for them, dividing ourselves to legitimize their authority. They don't got to come out and say fancy words. They don't have to come out with the best policies. If they can just get us to fight for them, uh, they're more than happy to let us do that. And so I think one of the stories we could take away from is Shechemites had no problem doing the religious thing for their own selfish game. The story continues. On the third day after the circumcision thing, when all the men were still in pain, I love it. Two of Jacob's sons and Dinah's brothers, named Simeon and Levi, took their swords, came into the city, which suspected nothing, and they killed all the males. They killed Hamor, they killed his son Shechem with their swords, they took Dinah from Shechem's household and left. When Jacob's other sons discovered the dead, they looted the entire city that had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their cattle, and their donkeys, whether in the city or in the fields nearby. They carried off their property, their children, and their wives, and they looted the entire place. It's there, and I don't, I've never heard a sermon on this story, but here it is. Here's the story before us. Why did Simeon and Levi ask Shechem and the Shechemites to get circumcised? They told us earlier, remember? They have a plan, and it's devious. They didn't want this city to worship the one true God of Israel. They wanted them to become weak so that they could kill them. What does God want us to feel? Man, it says head. I didn't switch it. I'm sorry. This is heart, if you're following along. Our religious feelings can mask evil intentions. So the world is willing to play religious games for their own selfish gain, but there's a lot of religious people who will mask their evil intentions and their own selfishness using religion, right? Do you have any examples of this? Send them in. I would love to read them in a couple slides here. But remember I said this, Jacob's sons responded deviously. The text tells you that they did not have any intention to try to bring these people into the fold of God. Remember, this is the mission. They're to be the light of the world. They're to spread the image of God across the globe. They're to to help point people to the God of Israel, the one true God. And they go, hey, why don't you do our religious thing? But not for the right reasons. They used their most sacred religious ritual as a plan for violence and deception. Yeah? Why did they do it? While everyone was still paying, they killed every male, they looted the city, and they took their wives and children. Took everything. Yeah? Not for some holy stuff, but for their own selfish gain. Just like the world. Everyone has the ability to use religion for their own selfish gain, including and especially religious people. Now, if they would have taken all the stuff and looted it and destroyed it, That happens in the Bible all the time. You would go, oh, they have some righteous indignation and they're upset. But they kept it. They kept it. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God will say, go and destroy that whole city and don't keep anything because it's not about that. It's about 
me giving you the land. They used their most sacred identity ritual as a ruse, as a mask to kill these people. They plundered their people and possessions for selfish gain, using their religion as a foil, as a mask for that. And we can all fall into these same lies. I am getting uh, lots of texts. You guys are so good. I need to do this more often. You know, I spend most of my time trying to come up with examples. <laughs> Just send them. So somebody said, shady televangelists with fake healings to increase their own profit. Yeah. They're always wearing white shoes for some reason. I'm like, what? Why do you have white shoes on? They're just going to get dirty. And they're like, not my stage shoes. Um, or their jets or whatever, you know? Like, it just doesn't feel good to me. And so I, I feel this person saying that. Um, I got another text. Somebody was saying uh, the way uh, Europe came to America and the way that we just slaughtered people, indigenous people, under the guise of religion, so that we could have some land and territory. I appreciate that. Someone said, um, the way we mix uh, our culture and our Christianity can be a way in which we sometimes, it, to, we can sometimes uh, think that being a part of our culture is actually being Christian. Like the more uh, invested you are in culture, the more holy you are when there's a lot of Christians all over the world. Uh, you guys are doing great. The example I came up with, it's in the news, and this image might be fresh, but people use religion all the time for selfish and evil intentions. This is the Taliban. This is them inside the presidential palace. Right? They have used their religion for selfish gain and for evil and for violence. Yeah. I think we can all agree. Not great. This image is from 1940s, right? They do not have a good goal in mind, and yet they have all the emblems and symbols of our faith to justify what they're doing. Respect to this guy, though. He, he doesn't have a mask on. He's like, I don't care if you take my picture. These guys are like, don't tell anybody my identity, right? And he's like, I don't care. Um, but they're using our faith for their evil, selfish gains. And I think this happens not in these big ways, because I'm really letting you off the hook by telling you about the terrorists that exist in the world using religious means. But sometimes the way we just approach everyday life, uh, I've, I've seen Christians say things like, I can't help them because Paul says those who don't work don't eat, and that, that's not what that verse means. Um, but we can use sometimes our, our religion to not do the Jesus stuff in our life. And I think the reason that's true is this Richard Rohr quote that I love and I bring out three times a year. He says, religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. And I think that's true. I think there's a way in which you get the rules and the, and the task lists and the, and the practices. And if you put it all together, you're like, I'm following Jesus. And, and you're not even close, right? That somehow you think in the doing of the things that you're close to Jesus and it really is a safe place to hide. Really, we could be using religion for all kinds of nefarious reasons to make ourselves look better, 
right, to uh, make the world think that we're good people when in reality God is far from us. Even the book of James says, oh, you believe there's one God? Great. Even the demons believe that. <laughs> like, there's a way in which you could believe all the right things, but like, Satan has better theology than we do, right? Like, Satan knows the truth about God more than we do, but is not transformed, is not a follower of Jesus, right? There's a way in which we can wrap our religion up inside of ourselves that does us no good except as a, as a mask for our own selfishness. So in summary, the world will use a religion for selfish gain. Religious people can use a religion for selfish gain. And I'm going to tell you the second one is by far the worst. Jesus is most upset by these people. He gets that one. That one makes total sense to him. These are the people that Jesus argued with. He's got a whole sermon against religious people who are hypocrites, he calls them. How terrible it will be for you, Jesus says, you legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter yourselves, and you won't allow those who want to enter to do so. How terrible it will be for you, legal experts and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over sea and land to make one convert, but when they've been converted, they've become twice the child of hell that you are. Jesus primarily argues with religious people who are using religion for selfish gain. This, to me, is what taking the Lord's name in vain means, by the way. When you were a kid, you were taught that you stubbed your toe and you were like, Jesus. It's more like you're using God as a mask for your own plans and selfish intentions. And God is not happy about that. The story concludes. Last point. Jacob, this is how the story ends, by the way. Jacob, or Israel, said to Simeon and Levi, You've put me in danger by making me offensive. The word offensive here is odious. You've made me a stench to those who live here in the land, to the Canaanites, to the Perizzites. I have only a few men. They may join forces and attack me and destroy me, me and my household. And the brother said, Simeon and Levi, but didn't the prince of Shechem treat our sister like a prostitute? End of story. Question, Mark. And I think the story begs the question, who, who's right? Is Jacob or Simeon and Levi right? Jacob says, you put me in danger. Me, 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 me. Attack me, destroy me. Me, oh yeah, and my household. Jacob is so selfish. <laughs> He's... Not great. Every time a pastor preaches the sermon about how he gets a transformed personality, you're like, okay, his name's Israel now. He's a new person. He's still got some of the old faults in there. <laughs> me, 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 me. And the brothers say, but, but do you remember how they treated my sister? And I don't know who's right. I don't know who's right. I think both of them are blind. Jacob is playing a worldly game and using some religion for his own selfish game. He's point number one. And these guys use their religion for their own selfish game. I don't know who's right. What does God want us to do? Wrapping up here. I think God wants us to walk in the world without becoming either. Religiously selfish 
or worldly fake religiously selfish. Right, I told you, Jacob arrived in that place and bought land. And so now Jacob has a stake in Shechem. It's the first time anybody had done that. And Jacob's sons responded deviously. And I just see them, him going, we just got a new home. I've been running since my brother said he was going to kill me a million years ago. We just settled and you put me in danger. I get that. That feels real. But also, like we have to defend our sister. That also feels real. And not one of them talks to their sister Dinah. <laughs> not one of them is like, hey, what happened? Give us the story. They both just want to do what they want to do. And they both are using whatever reasons they can grab to do it. And often it's their fear and it's their selfish motivation and it's their religious conviction that they're using as a mask. I think we're going to be in awful evil situations. You're going to be put in some hard situations. And you're going to have a temptation it's going to be for self-preservation. And I think that is a natural instinct that comes to all of us. That you're going to do, or you're going to be tempted to do what is best for you. And the world, slash government, slash empire, will offer you power and possessions, popularity, people, prestige, position. All, these are the things they're going to tell you that are going to help you. If you get these things, if you become strong enough or wealthy enough, or you get enough stuff or you get a high enough position in your community, you're not going to be in that hard situation anymore. You're going to be able to get over it. I think the kicker is bad religion also offers you the same stuff. Selfishly motivated religion will offer you those same stuff, but they'll tell you that God will give it to you, right? God's going to give you power and prestige and possessions and etc., etc. All of those people are going to give you these tools to help you preserve yourself. But I don't think that's what God's asking of us. Right? Jacob says, I have to live here. And Simeon and Levi say, but our sister. Jacob uses his family as a mask for fear, and the sons use righteous religious indignation and family as a foil for their violence and stealing. And I don't know which one is the best, except all I can do is tell us that we should look to Jesus because that violence and that fake religion is going to be more harmful for us in the long run, even though it feels right. This is a picture of Jacob. I wanted to show you the end of their story. Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. This is in Genesis 48. It's at the end. He's getting ready to die, and he blesses all of them. And he starts with Reuben. I know it's small. He says, assemble yourselves and listen to your father, Israel. Reuben, you're my oldest, you're my strength, but you slept with one of my wives, not great. Simeon and Levi, he blesses both of them at the same time, but it feels like a curse because of the story we just read. Your brothers, weapons of violence are your stock and trade. May I myself never enter into their council. May my honor never be linked to their group. For then they were angry, they killed men, and whenever they wished, they maimed oxen. Why do you... Why do you start with men? And you're like, but the oxen was the worst part of what they did. <laughs> Cursed be their anger. It is violent. Their rage, it is relentless. I'll divide them up and disperse them. Even Jacob says what they did wasn't right. But I also see Jacob being kind of selfishly motivated too. Ultimately, you're going to be tempted to self-preservation. And you're going to be tempted to use the weapons of the world to get out of those hard situations but I think there's a better way. 
How do we navigate that? I think Jesus is our example. I think Jesus is what we look to when we need to figure out how to walk this path between these two extremes of fake religion and selfishly motivated religion. When we're tempted to self-preservation and selfishness, Jesus, we remember, was killed between the palace and the temple. The world teamed up with the religion of the time and crucified him. And I think keeping our eyes on the cross is a way that we can walk that middle narrow way between the extremes that are going to be always presented to us, whether our world using our religion to get our favor or whether religion being violent, selfishly motivated. Jesus resisted bad religion that wanted to fight. He resisted worldly power that wanted to win through self-sacrificing love. I think that's the only antidote. Any questions or answers uh, before we get to our conclusion? Somebody said, the end of that Diana story is like the last episode of MASH, the show. It's so ambiguous. It's supposed to make you think. And I think that's true. We tell that story because it is ambiguous. Somebody asked earlier, why is Jacob sometimes still called Jacob, even though his name was changed to Israel? Great question. They're going to call him Jacob for the rest of the Bible and Israel. It's both. I think part of it is to remember that God chose a specific person in a specific place. Uh, We call that the scandal of particularity. It's like, why not everybody, right? But God works through individuals to change the world. And so sometimes they'll say Jacob because Israel gets conflated with the whole nation of Israel, but they'll still say Israel to refer to him. So I think also it's it's like a way to be cool, right? They're like, Jacob, like the God of Jacob, they'll say sometimes. But I think it's a way to talk about the personalness of God and also the personalness, not words, of um, how God works in the world. Does anyone have to be right in that story? Can they both be wrong? Absolutely. I think they both represent the extremes to which we're not supposed to go. That, that Jacob's wor- worried about the worldly game. Like, we need this land and we need not to be confronted by these people. We don't have enough people to fight a battle. He's worried about the worldly part that pulls us. Because we see people get successful, right, in the world, and we go, maybe if we follow their path, maybe if we play that worldly game. And the brothers are saying, but I have a righteous indignation, and they defiled our sister, and they treated her badly, and we need to defend her, but they're using this righteous indignation and, and religion as a mask to be violent. Like their father said, you are violent, and I don't ever want to seek your counsel. I think they're both wrong. I think they represent extremes to which we're not supposed to go. A religion that is selfishly motivated or worldly ways in which we're just trying to self-preserve. Great question. You're right on track. Uh, follow up on the Jacob and Israel question. When Saul was changed to Paul and Abraham, Abram changed to Abraham, there, weren't, there wasn't such an, uh, a changing of names. Is there a difference with Jacob? Just the conflation with the nation versus the person. I don't know. I would assume, if I were guessing, 
This is a total guess. Abraham, Abram did not know God and became Abraham in his relationship to God. Saul did not know Jesus and his name changed to Paul when he did encounter Jesus. Jacob knew God since the beginning and so his name change isn't a conversion as much as it's a, a, a character transformation, I think. And so maybe that would have been my guess, but I'm just making that up. I'll look it up. Great questions. I'm going to end with this story. This is John of Rila. He is a, a 900s saint in Bulgaria. He is the patron saint of Bulgaria. He's also the patron saint of pies, <laughs> which are delicious. This is his cave in the 900s. This is where his body rests. And the most famous story that he has is that he wanted to be a hermit. He wanted to live in his cave and be devoted to God. And while I don't recommend that because we need people to grow close to Jesus, uh, I understand wanting to live in a cave sometimes. <laughs> when my kids are describing YouTube videos to me, I'm like, is that, can I go live in a cave somewhere? His most famous story is this. The Tsar, Peter I, came to visit him because he heard about how holy John of Rila was. And John of Rila said, you can't come see me for two reasons. One, I'm worried that such a powerful figure coming to me will corrupt my heart. It'll make me vain. It'll make me proud. You can't come up here to my cave. But also, I'm worried that you coming to see me is going to be an excuse for you to do whatever you want with God's blessing. And I don't want to be the mask you use to do bad stuff. So you can't come. But you can send an emissary and talk to me if you want. And so he sends one of his soldiers and he sends jewels and pearls and gold and money and, and food. And being a hospitable person, which monks have to be hospitable, he took a loaf of bread and he sent it all back. And he said, I don't need any of your jewels. You should give those all to the poor. And Tsar Peter left, not being able to meet with St. John of Rila for those two reasons. And I think that encapsulates exactly what we're talking about. That there's a way in which our religion and our own heart can be corrupted for our own selfish gain. And there's a way in which the world wants to use our religion to bless their own selfish, violent ways. And so let St. John of Rila be your example. Here's your conclusion, and then we're done. With your head, uh, I want you to know the world will play religious games for selfish gain, which I think you know. With your heart, I want you to know that your religious feelings can mask evil intentions, and we need to bring those before Jesus. And ultimately, what I think God wants us to do is learn to walk in the world without going to the left or to the right of these. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this story. Wild as it is, may it be an example to us about how you want us to walk in the world. Root out those selfish motivations that we have. And help us to not be used by the world for their own gain. It is so hard because we want to be people of truth and we want to be people of right and we want to help our neighbors. And the world is offering us all kinds of ways in which we could do that, but ultimately help us to keep our eyes on you, Jesus. 
as you walked through the middle path between the palace and the temple. And because you did not capitulate to either one, they killed you. And may your sacrifice be redeeming for us and an example for us about how to walk in the world. And as we come now to your table, to the cup and to the bread, on the night before your betrayal, would it be a reminder of that middle way that we're supposed to walk in the world, following your example, because this is your body and your blood broken for us. This is a remembrance of your death. And may remembering your death give us guidance about how to walk in the world. Table Church, would you finish this prayer with me by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us.